Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Family Office Solutions Group Insights podcast series on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Uh, Today, we are joined by Brian Formento of the Family Office Solutions Group, as well as Andrew Wellington, co-founder and CIO of Lyrical Asset Management. Some background on our speakers today. So, Brian Formento is a senior member of the Family Office Solutions and Portfolio Advisory Groups. Within the Family Office Solutions Group, Brian works exclusively with $100 million plus clients across the U.S. Brian is responsible for articulating and delivering comprehensive research-driven asset allocation and portfolio strategy advice to our private wealth advisors and their ultra-high net worth clients. Andrew Wellington co-founded Lyrical Asset Management and serves as the firm's chief investment officer. Andrew has been involved in active portfolio management for over 25 years, having worked at Bazina Investment Management, as well as Newberger Berman, before launching Lyrical Asset Management. Andrew was the founding member of Bazina Investment Management, where he was the original equity research analyst and later became a principal and portfolio manager. Andrew then went on to Newberger Berman, where he ran their institutional mid-cap value product, growing that product from $1 billion to over $3 billion and earning a five-star Morningstar rating. So, with those introductions out of the way, at this point, I will go ahead and pass it over to Brian Formento, Senior Portfolio Strategist, who will take it from here and serve as our moderator for today's segment. So, Brian, welcome back. Let me pass it over to you. Thanks, Dan, and uh, thank you for those kind words in the introduction, and I'm really looking forward to um, talking about value investing with Andrew Wellington. Um, certainly, we've, we've been talking a lot about equity rotation here at the firm on uh, not only value and growth, but also country and size rotation. And the question is, just given how value has lagged growth stocks over the last several years, uh, how much runway do we really have? And we've seen, uh, I guess, some movement uh, with uh, value starting to perform, although the last several weeks ago we've seen a, a resurgence in growth stocks. But um, I guess really just starting the conversation, Andrew, um, how do you feel about the, the current state of value versus growth, and where do you think we are? Thanks, Brian. Uh, good to be joining you today. Um, we're pretty excited about where value looks today. Um, you know, it, it, your view of value is going to change a lot depending on what you use to define value. And I think there's a lot of misinformation out there because a lot of people look at the major indices from Russell and S&P to form their opinions about how value is doing. And that's not how we look at value. Um, We focus more on the cheapest stocks in the market. And on that basis, we've seen those stocks um, have been outperforming for well over a year, um, a period when those indices have not been outperforming. Those indices have just started to outperform over the last several months, but real deep value stocks have been outperforming for over a year. If we look back historically, I've been doing this for 25 years. I've got data going back to 60 years ago. And value does go in cycles. And about once a decade, you get a year or two where value stocks are out of favor. And we had that in the tech bubble in 98, 99. We had that in the financial crisis in 07, 08. And we had that recently in 2018 up through the bottom of the COVID sell-off in March of 2020. And since then, value stocks have been doing very well. Um, better than that. They've been doing fantastic. But um, these value stocks are pretty typical. 
And while value does underperform for a year or two, about once a decade, um, we see that it outperforms for long runs. Value upcycles in the past have lasted anywhere from six to 12 years and average about eight years. So the way we see it, uh, we're in the first inning of what we think will be a very long, um, profitable run for value stocks. Right. So obviously, um, sounds like we've got plenty of runway and um, clients would not be too late. Um, when you think about the global economy and more broadly, the U.S. economy, are there things that we should be looking for, like uh, signposts that would make us worry about investing in value stocks today? I've looked at this a lot, too. And the short answer is no, there really isn't any macroeconomic indicators or data that correlates with the value cycle. The value cycle kind of goes on its own. Uh, it beats to the beat of its own drummer. And so a lot of people have been associating the rise in interest rates as a good thing for the value cycle. And I think that may be true for this cycle. But if we look back historically, there's been almost no connection between rates rising or falling or being high and low and how value does. So, um, you know, sometimes these things become self-fulfilling prophecies. If everybody believes rising rates are good for value, whether it's true or not, then it becomes true in the market. And so we may see some connection between some of these macro things. But if you look historically, really, there isn't any great macro data that correlates well with when value stocks do well or not. Um, they, they, it, most of the time, value stocks do outperform. And then, like I said, you do get to these uh, periods where usually something big is driving the market, a tech bubble, a financial crisis. Uh, I think this period, it was the emergence of the fangs that kind of made everybody go crazy and forget all these great value stocks. Uh, but I think that's that's past us, and now the market's returning to good under undervalued companies. Right. Well, it sounds like we should really then delve more deeply into your view on what really constitutes a value stock. I mean, certainly it's not just cyclicals. There's other things that are attractive and deep value. And maybe you could kind of give a little definition around how you kind of view value stocks and how we can really exploit that versus the benchmarks. Yeah, it's not just cyclicals. In fact, I don't even – I'm not so sure that cyclicals are even value stocks. Yeah, I know you don't have very much in your portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> we don't really own them, um, and we've never found them to be attractive values. So, But, yeah, there, a lot of people associate sectors with value, and it's not about sectors. Uh, value investing – at its most simplest level, is buying businesses at a discount to what they're intrinsically worth. That's it. Um, if a cyclical is expensive, it's not a value stock. And if a tech company is cheap, it is a value stock. It's all about what the price is relative to what the intrinsic value of the business is. And a little more specifically, the intrinsic value of a business, to us, we go back to the basic principles of finance. The intrinsic value of a business is the present value of its future cash flows. And that's what we try to do. We search the market. We start with a universe of the thousand largest U.S. stocks, and we look for those companies that are trading at the deepest discounts to their intrinsic value, the deepest discounts to their future earnings. And when you start with a universe of a thousand stocks, there's actually a couple hundred that are, appear to be at a deep discount to their intrinsic value. Now, many of them aren't. They may look that way at first glance, 
but you see they have bad business fundamentals or other things wrong with them. And really, that's our job as an active manager is to sift through these companies that look statistically cheap and try to sort out which are the ones that really are cheap and which are the ones that have low multiples but actually deserve them. Right, right. Well, certainly, um, we saw at the lows of last year, um, I couldn't believe what your, how your book was priced. It seemed like the market had completely abandoned those uh, core businesses. And um, maybe you could give a little color about last year's performance, because certainly I think it was kind of the best, worst of times and then the best of times, right? Yeah, at first it was the worst of times, but those worst of times created perhaps the greatest entry point um, into the equity markets we've seen in 10 or 20 years. And since that bottom, returns have been um, pretty spectacular. Uh, we had a lot of bad performance to make up for, but we've made up now. And actually, we've gone up so much since the bottom that even from pre-COVID levels, we are well ahead of the S&P 500 um, in a period where the Russell and S&P value indices still lag by quite a lot. And I can't exactly tell you why our stocks sold off as much as they did. By the fundamentals, they shouldn't. You know, a lot of time has passed, and we now have uh, good information about how all these businesses were impacted by COVID, which was the biggest reason for that sell-off. And overall, our portfolio, yeah, our earnings came down, but they came down by about half as much as they came down for the S&P 500, and even by about half as much as they came down for the NASDAQ. Uh, but we saw people flock to these uh, NASDAQ-like businesses, even that didn't really have earnings. And at first, their reaction was to sell the companies with low multiples, even those whose businesses were unlikely to be negatively impacted by COVID. And so we have a few examples in the portfolio where you could just see how indiscriminate the selling was. Um, and we took advantage of that by adding some of these names to the portfolio. So you know, one name we added last year after the sell-off was Dell, the, uh, the big technology company. And I was... I hesitate a little bit because even I was going to say the PC company, even though PCs is a small fraction of what they do. Right. But last year was really good for IT spending, and it ended up being really good for Dell. So even though COVID was a catastrophe on a human scale, if you're in Dell's business, they actually ended up earning about almost 20%, 10 to 20% more than they were originally expected. And yet the knee-jerk reaction by the market back in March of 2020 when COVID was first breaking out was that stock sold off almost by 50%. I think it was down 42 or 45%, something like that. It ended up finishing the year up. But um, you know, that's one example. We, we bought another company called Berry Plastics. And you wouldn't think a company that makes pill bottles and yogurt containers and Tide detergent containers would be negatively impacted by the global pandemic. And again, they weren't. Um, they were positively impacted. Their business, again, also uh, their earnings came in about 10 or 20 percent higher than originally expected. And that, too, uh, first sold off by about 40 or 50 percent. Uh, so in the panic, we, and we call it a panic because the selling seemed so indiscriminate that people weren't really paying attention to what businesses did and were um, selling some things off. In, in a very knee-jerk fashion that created a lot of opportunities. As the dust settled and we got to see how these businesses were really doing, the market corrected those errors, and that led, drove a lot of our recovery, uh, so much so that even 
like I said, from, from pre-COVID levels, we are now ahead of the S&P 500. So uh, we've recovered all of that dip and then some. Well, well, certainly, you know, we're getting excited about looking at first quarter earnings, and we're certainly very positive and think that uh, the market is not um, um, as as bullish on earnings as we are. And I'd love to get your sense for what kind of earnings you think you could be seeing out of out of your portfolio. Well, what we did see for the you know third and fourth quarters of 2020 was earnings came in way ahead of expectations. And this is pretty common when you have a negative event like the pandemic, the analysts bring the earnings down and they overreact and then things turn out to be not as bad as expected and the earnings have to, the the estimates are too low versus how the businesses do. At some point, I think the sell side gets it right. And so, yeah, we're coming off at depressed levels. The absolute year-over-year comparisons are going to look pretty good. That might be troublesome for some of the darlings in the fangs because they got such a boost last year that they're going to have some incredibly tough comparisons as we get into the second and third quarters of this year. Right. But for our businesses, yeah, the year-over-year comparisons are very easy. Year-over-year growth rates are very high. Um, But on the other hand, the market's up a lot, and so a lot of that's already in the stock prices for the broad market. Uh, obviously, for the companies we own, we don't think it's fully in there yet. That's why we think they're cheap. Um, but um, the 2021 should be a great year for year-over-year earnings growth. And I know that we've talked over the years that um, historically there's been sort of a spread between um, your portfolio and let's call it the S&P or growth stocks and um, I know in past conversations we think that your portfolio is still pretty cheap on a comparison basis and uh, obviously with your views and your comments you've made so far today they've got plenty of room to go but maybe you can talk a little bit about certain some of the analytics that you look at when you're sort of measuring your companies and um, price to book etc. Yeah price to book gets a lot of talk when you talking to value investors And I think that's because back in the 1990s, uh, two Nobel Prize winners, Fama and French, um, came up with a study, the first academic study, really, of value investing. Value investing existed for decades before that. Um, It is, you know, we think of Benjamin Graham and that he was investing back in the, you know, 1929 stock crash. Uh, But because FOM and French use price to book, it seems like the world began to assume that value investing is about price to book. And yet I've been doing this for 25 years, and I know dozens and dozens of other value investors, and I don't know anyone that uses price to book in how they build their portfolios. So value investing is not price to book. Um, I think it's what we said it is, which is looking at the future earnings of a business and then trying to buy those earnings for as low a price as possible. And by that measure, our portfolio today and throughout our history has always had very attractive characteristics. Um, our portfolio PE has always been lower than that of the S&P 500. Sometimes it's been 30% lower. Other times it's been uh, 50% lower. And today it's somewhere in between. So the S&P 500 today, um, the va- what we call the valuation spread, how much higher is the market than us? It's still at pretty wide historical levels. It's, it's the S&P 500 multiple is about 80% higher than us. And our long history is more like 23%. So that's a really wide spread. Our PE ratio is at 12. 
which is about what our long-term average has been. The market multiple is up around 22, which is about 50% above what its history has been. So our multiple looks very attractive by historical standards. I don't find the market's multiple that attractive by historical standards. But again, it's not just the PE. um, It's the earnings growth you get. Uh, A 12 PE stock whose earnings aren't growing could prove to be very expensive. That doesn't make it cheap. And our portfolio has always had growth characteristics as good or better as the S&P 500. And so that's that's kind of been our proposition, that you can get earnings growth as good or better than the S&P 500. And right now, the historical earnings of our portfolio is quite a bit better, um, several percentage points better. So you get a, a group of companies who have grown over the last economic cycle two or three percentage points a year faster than the S&P, and yet the S&P you've got to pay 80% more for. And that combination of deep value and good growth is really something that's uncommon at Lyrical that we don't see at any other firm. There's a rare few firms out there that have PEs as low as ours, um, but if you look at the growth rates of their companies, they don't come close to ours. Their growth rates are usually way below that of the market. And And there's definitely firms that have higher sales growth or or earnings growth than us too, but their PEs aren't 12s. They're like 24s or 34s. So that combination of deep value and good growth is really something that's, that's uncommon at our shop. And Andrew, when you're talking about growth in your portfolio, you're really talking about return on invested capital, no? Well, uh, we care a lot about return on invested capital. Um, when we find investing in value stocks is a lot more successful when you avoid the bad businesses with low returns on invested capital. But return on invested capital is not the same thing as growth. It definitely is easier to grow if you have a high return on invested capital. But it isn't the exact same thing as growth. So when I'm talking about growth, um, mostly I was just before talking about historical growth and not just over the last year, but over the last decade. And I'm talking about earnings per share growth over the long run. And um, maybe you could talk a little bit more about your portfolio and, you know, the concentration that you have and how you think about putting stocks in the portfolio. Because I think given that you're so unique in sort of the deep value space, given other managers that we have on the platform, I think it would be very informative for our listeners to get a little sense for that. As I mentioned earlier, we start with a universe of the thousand largest U.S. stocks. And we have a proprietary earnings-based valuation model that we run that universe through, and we sort that universe uh, so that the cheapest stocks are at the top and the most expensive stocks are at the bottom. And when we run this screen, what we find is there's typically about 200 stocks that look statistically cheap enough and attractive enough to us. But if you take a step back and you look at those 200 cheapest stocks, uh, what you mostly see is they're not very good businesses. And a lot of them have really big problems. And they actually tend to work out anyway because while they don't deserve high multiples, the multiples they are assigned are still way too low and they end up outperforming. But really, our approach to active management is to sift through those cheapest 200 stocks or so. And when you do that, you see there are some that are obviously bad, and there's others that are clearly good. And we just want to focus on avoiding some of the worst and picking out some of the best. And be more refined than just buying things because they're statistically cheap. Um, Again, not everything that's statistically cheap is actually undervalued. Um, So we want to be refined. And so one of the things we do is we eliminate all the bad businesses. 
know, we in our portfolio we only own about 33 stocks, so we have a lot of ability to avoid big chunks of what's currently cheap. And one of the places we want to avoid is is low quality companies, companies with poor returns on invested capital. And what we found as analysts is when we avoid companies with poor returns on invested capital, we avoid a lot of mistakes. We get more things right. And the other thing we want to do is we want to avoid companies that have big problems or are really complicated or really difficult to figure out. Not every company is equally easy or difficult to analyze. Some are really hard and some are much easier. And we look for those easier companies because, again, when something is simpler and easier to analyze, our chance of getting it right goes way up. We have a much greater chance of analyzing a business like Berry Plastics that makes yogurt containers and pill bottles than we do, say, figuring out a global, diverse, mega financial institution like Citigroup or Goldman Sachs. So we're just going to get the simpler business right a lot more often. And really, that's what our approach is all about, trying to get more things right and less things wrong uh, amongst these deeply valued companies. And while it's really profitable and successful to look for good, simple businesses amongst the very cheapest, it isn't so easy because a lot of those companies don't exist. There's not a lot of them out there. And so we couldn't run this process with a 100 or 200 stock portfolio. If we want to stick to these attractive criteria, there's only 30 or 40 stocks in the universe that, that typically meet these criteria. So we end up with about 33 stocks in our portfolio, but it's still well diversified. Uh, we don't want to have big concentrations. We don't want to have too many eggs in one basket. So we typically have 33 stocks, and of those 33 stocks, there's often 25 to 30 different industries represented underneath there. Right. And so well, it sounds like financials are something you avoid. Are there other, other sectors you avoid as well or other you know, there are, types of companies? Um, there, there's, I mean, it really comes down to the businesses. And I'm, we do avoid banks, but we don't avoid financials. Uh, financials is a big, broad definition. And there are a lot of attractive companies out there that provide services that are financial in nature, like wealth management, um, that aren't the risk profile of things like banks. And so if you look at our sector breakdown, um, I'll say it's completely accurate and completely misleading because our biggest sector allocation is financials, but we don't own a single bank. But we do own some businesses like Ameriprise and Wealth Management and uh, Affiliated Managers Group and Asset Management. And we own some specialty insurance companies that are have a pretty steady low risk profile. So um, we don't own banks, but we do own other financials. Um, we have a lot in tech. That's about as big as financials. Uh, we don't own any fangs, though. But tech's a really big part of the economy now. Um, it's difficult to build a portfolio that doesn't have tech in it. And so we own companies like Western Digital that are in data storage. Um, so there's, there's uh, a great variety of companies out there. There aren't really sectors per se we avoid. There are some sectors like consumer staples that don't have any undervalued companies in it, as far as we can tell. So we don't have anything there. Um, we don't invest in REITs because it requires a different kind of analysis than what we think we're really good at. But other than that, um, I think we're well represented across most sectors. Got it. Got it. And um, for shorthand, um, I mean, given you are unique and such deep value, given your approach to stocks, 
um, if I can use that term, is there a benchmark that you would recommend people should be valuing your portfolio against? Is it like S&P core or cause I know like in like dividend stocks, or dividend growth strategies, we see many instances, although many of the dividend strategies benchmark against the run sold 1000 value. Um, you can see that if they're dividend growers and that's their strategy, they tend to be more oriented towards core and may even have some growth names in the portfolio. Yeah, our clients break down about half of them benchmark us against the S&P 500 and maybe the other half benchmark us against the S&P 500 value or Russell 1000 value. Uh, it depends a lot on the client type. In the wealth management area, I think it's a little bit more the overall market would get benchmarked against. In the institutional world, um, uh, they tend to be more style box focused and yeah. use a value index like the S&P 500 value. None of them are really good benchmarks. And in a way, I think that's the hallmark of a very good active approach is that you can't get it from a benchmark. And so all these benchmarks have their flaws. Uh, I'd say we should be a little better fit with the value index, but the value index is not a great proxy for value investing. So it's a little bit better fit than the S&P 500, but it's still not a great right. fit. And I've always felt whether your strategy is value, growth, dividends, whatever it is, if over time you don't beat the S&P 500, then nobody needs your strategy. So, well, um, yeah. good fit or not good fit, we need to beat the S&P 500 over the long run or there isn't a great case for investing in our product. And fortunately, we have done that. But um, uh, fit isn't everything. Uh, and and you know, they're, they're just, I'll say, there isn't a great commonly used benchmark out there that tracks value well. But those are the two best ones, and that's what our clients use to benchmark us. Right. Well, I remember sitting in your offices um, with Jeff when you guys first launched, and um, the thing that excited me about your strategy was that um, it really did. It really was an opportunity to blow up the style boxes, which is something we've tried to do here at UBS. To just think about those managers that can perform over the long term, and kind of let the style box stuff kind of do its own thing. <laughs> yes. And, and, you know, I think we're more style pure than the value benchmark is. You know, we have a low PE. Our PE in our portfolio is about 12. The PE on the value benchmarks is 18. That doesn't sound like value investing to me. Um, and so I think we're more style pure than our benchmarks are. We're style pure. We're just not benchmark pure. Uh, we run very high active share if you want something that's going to look like the benchmark, there's a ton of Me Too products out there you can invest in. You don't need us. But if you want a pure expression of value, and I believe the better returns that come with that approach, then I think we have a good role to play in someone's portfolio. Great, great. Well, I want to uh, take the opportunity to thank you for joining us today. Uh, and I hope everyone enjoyed this conversation and it really truly highlights that um, there are still some great opportunities in the marketplace um, for thoughtful investing. And hopefully, um, you know, our tactical conversation today is very timely for everyone. And, uh, Andrew, I want to thank you and all your, all your team for your, your constant support and uh, um, welcome chatting with you. And uh, I think we'll let it close from there. Yeah, I want to thank you for this opportunity. 
there's uh, a lot of misunderstanding and misinformation out there about value investing, and I appreciate the opportunity to try to set some of that record straight. Great. So, so for our listeners today, I hope you'll join us for future episodes as we offer more perspective from industry veterans like Andrew and um, look forward to coming together again at a later date. Take care, everyone. This commentary is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice or the basis for making any investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed may not be officially those of UBS Financial Services, Inc., and the firm does not verify nor guarantee the accuracy or completeness of the information presented. The information in this discussion has been prepared by and reflects the opinions and various investment views of the speaker. UBS Financial Services, Inc. has not independently verified such information and does not guarantee its accuracy or completeness. This information is being provided to you for your information purposes only and does not constitute a recommendation or an endorsement by UBS Financial Services, Inc. of the author of the securities or views stated herein. Any specific securities discussed should not be considered a recommendation or solicitation to buy or sell any particular security. You should not assume that any investment in any of the securities was or will be profitable. The past performance of an index is not a guarantee of future results. Lyrical Partners and its employees are not affiliated with UBS Financial Services, Inc. or its affiliates. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that clients understand the ways in which we conduct business, that they carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to them about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review the PDF document at UBS.com forward slash relationship summary. UBS 2021, all rights reserved. The key symbol and UBS are among the registered and unregistered trademarks of UBS. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG member FINRA SIPC.